Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Hey listeners, welcome again to another episode of The Nuclear View. Don't change your dials. Yes, I am not Adam Lowther. This is still Curtis McKiffin hosting. However, comma... We have Adam Lowther in the studio uh, here, on, who's returned from his long assignment. Uh, he has promised to improve himself uh, in his hosting uh, abilities, and we are glad to have him back. Uh, Adam, good to see you. It was good to see you. Thanks, uh, Curtis. And Jim is here, as always, with his science background. Good to see yeah, you, sir. Yeah, thank you, Curtis. And yeah, I just want to uh, mention, Adam, I hope you can get through all 10 points of the program that we put together for you. <laughs> That's right. So so this episode is one of these I've been uh, uh, sort of mousing around with this thing for uh, the 10 days that Adam was gone on assignment uh, because I really wanted to put him under the pressure uh, of, of being the interviewee rather than the host. Although many would say that the host does have the most pressure. <laughs> but nonetheless, here we are. So really what we're going to talk about today is uh, you had the um, opportunity while you were on assignment uh, to, ten- to attend this year's uh, United States Strategic Command uh, Deterrent Symposium, August 16th and 17th up in Omaha, Nebraska, lovely Omaha. And I uh, wanted to uh, really spend today sort of reviewing um, this symposium. Now, we've had these symposiums for several years. Um, most of them are, are in person. Of course, there were a couple years during the COVID era where they were done virtually. And I thought it was quite well done uh, to do them virtually, but it's good to have them back uh, in session. I like to refer to these uh, symposiums as sort of the Comic-Con for deterrence geeks like us. Uh, it is a place not only uh, to learn, but it's a place to be seen. Uh, but we just leave off the costumes and uh, and we just sort of enjoy uh, the, the learning and the camaraderie um, of these of these deterrence thinkers. So, uh, un- unfortunately, this year I didn't get to go. You went uh, because you know we're on a limited budget here at NIDS, and we can only support uh, only afford so many people <laughs> to go to these things. So you you uh, you drew the uh, the longest straw and got to go. Uh, and so I wanted to, uh, or Jim and I wanted to really just kind of sit down and pick your brain uh, for the leaders. But before we get started, I'm going to let our president say something about these things. Well, well, not just about that, but Adam wasn't the only one from NIDS to go. So yeah. I want to make sure that Adam highlights That's the true. fact that NIDS had a fairly strong present at the symposium. We, we and did. So we'll, we'll cover that up front. So maybe we could start there, Adam, before we get into the details. Yeah, so... You know, in addition to myself, uh, Kirk Fancher was there. Um, Bob Peters, who's, you know, he's now moved to Heritage, but he still has an affiliation with us. He was there on one of the panels. Christine Leah, you know, she she's our Australian contingent. She she flew over for the conference and she's traveling the country. And then Robin Hutchins, whom she's written a few articles and she's one of our folks she was there as well so we we you know we had four or five folks there so it was a strong contingent of our people 
No, that's that's fantastic. And of course, Robin there with her newly minted PhD. We're so proud of her. And um, and, um, and 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 there were even others who who were sort of uh, in and around that whole Stratcom region that uh, may or may not want to be identified. Uh, but nonetheless, here we are. And this is going to be a, a lot of fun. So I miss this uh, and uh, I won't miss next year's, but I wanted to uh, spend a few minutes here um, for myself, for Jim, for the audience to really hear your thoughts, Adam, on what you thought of the deterrence symposium. Let's start with, do you have, what are your overall observations? What do you kind of walk away from? Did it accomplish what it set out to do or did you kind of leave wanting more? Well, you know, for deterrence folks, you know, for the military side, there's the STRATCOM symposium. And then for the NNSA side, there's, you know, the deterrence summit that's usually sort of February-ish in D.C. And so, you know, if you go to those, if you're, you know, more a lab guy or gal, you know, the deterrence summit that NNSA puts on is more your bag. If you spent your career mostly as a military guy, this is probably more your bag. And they're they're both great opportunities to really get to see the folks that you, you've been friends with throughout your career, that you've worked with. And so, you know, one of the biggest parts and, and you know, credit to Mike Powell, who puts, you know, who's in the J57, who puts on the deterrent summit that's or the deterrent symposium. That's his you know, his pet project, and he did a great job. They moved from the La Vista Convention Center. They moved back downtown. They shortened the panels. They increased the breaks to give folks more chances to catch up and talk and, you know, network. And so the overall, the project or the, you know, Mike Powell did a really good job in how he sort of modified and took into account the, you know, the critiques he got from last year. So it was a great conference. It was a great opportunity to see folks. And then they brought in really good speakers and the panels were, you know, really interesting. And if, if you want to just start like the opening panel was, sure, yeah. it, it was a panel, a lot of the senior Intel folks, you know, you had Dan Taylor, who is the national intelligence officer, for East Asia, Thomas Sisk, who's the DIA intelligence officer for China. You had Richard Chancellor and Marcus Garlot. I always have trouble pronouncing his name. Marcus Garlowskis, um, who is now, he's a retired Intel guy and he's at uh, the Atlantic Council. And so that Intel panel, which really kind of addressed the threat and, you know, what is that threat we face was, was an exceptional, you know, it was a good one. And it was, it was interesting because Dan, one of the big things Dan Taylor said was, well, Hey, you know, did our focus on Afghanistan and the middle East hurt our ability to really prepare for China? And of course the answer was yes, it has. And that was, that was really one of the, the things. And, and so there was a general consensus of the panel members that China's the big threat. Russia's a persistent threat that never, you know, if you know Vladimir Putin and others, the last thing they want is to be ignored. Uh, much like the North Koreans, they don't want to be ignored. And so therefore they will always, you know, ensure that you are paying attention to them. That's great, Jim. 
Yeah, Adam, you were you were mentioning the relationship between uh, activities that the U.S. does, you know, such as Afghanistan, and our adversaries being emboldened by uh, our actions. Uh, can you do you have any lessons learned, or even maybe sp- any specifics that you can share with us that were brought out by the panel? Because oftentimes in the news, it it it, it often appears as hyperbole, and I don't believe it is. Um, but it is hard to nab that down in, in sort of the unclassified environment. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess the main thing would be that you really have to be careful where you spend your time, energy, and resources, your, you know, your, your blood and your treasure, and that you have to pick and choose. And that's one of the things that we've perhaps have not done as well. And then, you know, it's like, it wasn't just that we, you know, we were, our attention was diverted away from, you know, what is honestly our biggest challenge is, you know, a a peer China that in so many ways is nothing like the Soviet Union. It's a much larger economy. It's much more productive. It's got a much larger population. It's, It's really not like the former Soviet Union. It's a totally different fight. Um. And with our focus on for, you know, a generation on the Middle East and Afghanistan, we spent, you know, six trillion dollars in a place where our vital national interests weren't necessarily at risk. And that was a challenge that, you know, we're now having to address and sort of play catch up on. And then the other thing that I particularly because there were a lot of allies there that, you know, this conference is one where you've get you've got Europeans, you've got, you know, I sat at a table with and, and had a good conversation with a, a South Korean two star uh, and we had lunch together and and, you know, we just have a lot of allies that come to these as well. And in talking to them, you know, one of the things that people have mentioned to me is it's not just that we were in Afghanistan for a generation, but they also worry about, they look at how we left Afghanistan and they worry, you know, what is, will we do something like that to them? And so that was, that was, you know, sort of a, another part of it is that you, you know, have to be thoughtful in how you manage, you know, conflict termination. And so that yeah. was important. Yeah, Adam, I really like the way you said that and that, uh, you know, $6 trillion invested in a, in a conflict that may not have necessarily um, completely addressed our national interests. And I think part of that is because our national interests change. When you're, you're engaged in something for almost 20 years, your, your national interests are likely going to change. And so being able to uh, to adjust to that, um, I think is something that, that uh, agile policy and, and whatnot, um, uh, you know, we could peel back Afghanistan. That's a whole other show. Um, I, I but I meant, I, I think it's, it's fascinating. There seems to be uh, continued, um, a lot of, uh, of interest in, and, uh, uh, thought, in, uh, pressures placed on this whole China question, um, over some of the other issues, uh, did they did they address North Korea um, or Iran in any of these uh, threat indications? Yeah, I mean North Korea is one that you you know nobody was ignoring North Korea. I mean, there's a clear sort of ranking of priority, and it's you know China, Russia, North Korea, 
And Iran is one we didn't really talk, you know, there wasn't much discussion of Iran, but there was, you know, North Korea definitely received its fair share of discussion. You know, the, the South Korean contingent and, you know, the Japanese are definitely worried. They're worried about China and North Korea. That's the two big threats in, mm-hmm. in the East. And then the, the Europeans, because you had a panel of allies, you know, generals, you had a Norwegian general and you had a Lithuanian general. And they are, you know, for those that live near the Russians and border the Russians, they're definitely worried about the Russians. <laughs> yeah, so, are. you know, where you sit determines where you stand. And so that, you know. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, um, uh, a China Taiwan fight is, is likely going to impact the, the globe much more than, than unfortunately the, the, the Ukrainian crisis does mainly just, I think the impact will be just so much bigger economically, um, and so forth. Um, so as the panels moved on, they kind of started to, to, to talk about this integrated deterrence concept that's was sort of um, um, a product of the of the Biden administration and the and the and the Austin Pentagon. Um, what what sort of uh, conversations did you kind of get out of that whole integrated deterrence panel? Well, the integrated deterrence panel was was actually a really good one. And so, you know, I had dinner the night before with the, those panelists on that integrated deterrence panel. We, we went for uh, to a nice steakhouse, which you got to do in Omaha. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, Vince Manzo and Bob Peters and Justin Anderson, uh, all great guys, all, you know, friends. But, um, you know, Vince works for a state, so he was there to, you know, help explain the State Department approach. And for State Department, you know, that's it's norms building. That's really in you know, particularly in like space, for example, they're trying to prevent conflict in space through building norms. Uh, it's one of their big things. And then uh, Justin, you know, Justin's been doing a lot of work and on uh, in, you know, he thinks about conventional nuclear integration a lot. You know, he's at uh, NDU. And then, but sort of the guy that really was sort of throwing bombshells was Bob Peters. You know, Bob is, is, you know, he now is at Heritage. And so Bob just sort of threw it all, all out on the table and said, hey, you know, uh, we, we need Slick them in. We need Pershing 3. We need nukes in the Western Pacific. You know, he laid it all out. And, uh, you know, this whole soft power thing doesn't really work. Uh, yeah. So the, the whole idea of integrated deterrence that we're going to use things other than nuclear weapons to deter, you know, I, I sort of agree with Bob that I, because I've, you know, the whole point I was looking for in the panel and didn't really get was like, how does integrated deterrence actually work? Like who's in charge of it? And this is something that they did discuss. And That's Bob right. said, Hey, if you're going to actually do this, you got to have somebody in charge. And he offered, you know, maybe it's the, the depth death, or maybe it's the, you know, who these people who would be in charge of integrating what, you know, the treasury aspect of it and the state aspect and the, cause there's really nobody that sort of runs integrated deterrence. And, you know, then he said, well, if you can get that right, you know, great. Cause you know, we all would agree that you should have as many tools in the, in your kit as possible. But in the end, 
hard power is what you're going to have to use. And That's it's, right. it's funny after he spoke, he was the only one at the whole conference who sort of got a, uh, you know, a standing ovation after he gave his talk. So really? he, was, he was definitely <laughs> standing ovation. Wow. He was definitely like appealing to the, you know, the audience in the room. Uh, That's interesting. I, although, you know, some of the, the detractors uh, that were, you know, the, the disarmament crowd complained that there were, you know, too many white male speakers. And so that was, you know, sort of one of the main uh, critiques of the conference was that, you know, it's, if you, if you can't talk about the arguments, then you find something else to criticize. And so that's sort of one of the criticisms of the conference was the color and gender of the Mm -hmm. folks, but it was a great panel. Well, you know, we talked about this in the past. We wrote that paper on integrated deterrence uh, a few months ago. and We talked about that there should be a an integrated deterrence czar maybe right here to uh, to sort of connect those things together. Um, Jim, how do you guys do this in the engineering world when you have these disparate sections of engineering that all have to come together into one thing? Well, you know, yeah. And first of all, I'd say that the, the main thing that you – end up having, at least in the engineering community, is a very strong orientation to the mission. What is the mission? What is the requirement? And how do we meet it? And, you know, I, I, you know, I have the standard answer to everyone, you know, what do you have? What do you need? And what do you want? Because those are all different things. Where are we? You know, what do you need? That'll get the mission done. And what do you want to sort of the way out there kind of thing. And I, I find it rather interesting in, in, in the these two communities that we somewhat approach them a little differently. Um, I find that the strategic community really does a sort of a shotgun approach oftentimes at things. And I think that's good because it makes people think this is not, it's not disparaging. Actually, I like it. And I've learned a lot working in this community quite a bit where you find the technical community tends to get quickly stovepiped into an area because the disciplines are so tight and the mixing of these two disciplines, I think, would be good for both because I think there's value in both uh, approaches. And uh, you know, you mentioned having a you know integrated deterrence czar, and maybe this is uh, something that NIDS could take on. But I really think someday that we should look at nuclear as being its own domain. It just uh, it seems to consolidate the way that we operate. I mean, cyber is its own domain, right? So why not? My only challenge with a nuclear czar is that if it's as effective as the drug czar has been. Uh, <laughs> Again, well, I, I don't we're like talking this. a deterrence czar rather than a nuclear czar. <laughs> yes, because I you got to balance all these things. I think right now, well, by integrated presidents, right? But I think right now, you know, by default, you know, the president would be the integrator because all of the, the factions and in integrated deterrence are are secretaries in the cabinet. Yeah, it, and I, uh, I, finding a czar who can who can who can get these different secretaries to sort of dance to the same tune could very well be pretty difficult. So I I think we change the dialogue. We get rid of the concept of a czar. After all, it sort of has roots somewhere else that I really don't care for. I think we should have a deterrence influencer and we should have influencers going out there and and carrying our water for us in the same way that influencers do everywhere else well we can certainly message on tiktok right (laughs) there you go Uh, so so going into that space if you will there was a great panel on the psychology the psychological aspects of deterrence 
um, that I found very interesting in, in reading, you know, what the panel was trying to, to get after here. And we know that deterrence is very much a psychological uh, exercise because it's based on perception, right? The adversary gets to determine what deters them. We don't necessarily get to project what we think deters them. And um, uh, I was I was curious if you could comment, Adam, on this on this panel and what you kind of walked away with on this on this psychological aspects panel. Yeah, I would say that as I talk to people, sort of after the panels and stuff, this was probably one of the the favorite panels that you know folks had, and they were particularly pleased and thought that there was a gal. Uh, Nirat Paisano, who is the chief psychology officer at Cognovi Labs, which is a, you know, it's a company. And what they do is they've got some software that's got some AI built into it that allows them to look at speeches and other things that, you know, people do. And then it, it, it has it looks at emotions and it has, I think like six or eight emotions, something like that. And they can sort of scale those and the AI helps them figure out, you know, if it's like high in anger or high, you know, it picks those emotions and, and you get a sense to see what, you know, what those are. And everybody was really impressed with, with her talk and, and sort of, what she thought and it it gave sort of a sense of, well, Hey, why aren't we doing more of this? And why don't we have these sort of tools? And then how might we be able to use them? If, if let's say if we understood, if we, you know, we had a capability where we could look at she or Putin or KJU or whomever, and we can sort of, you know, do something and then watch them talk and see, you know, does that make them angry or does that make them fearful or how, how does it influence them that you could really, that, that would be useful. So that was one, the panel was good. And then, you know, her talk in particular was, was really sort of provocative and people thought were walked away going, Hmm, that's, that's really interesting. So I bet you her company will get a bunch of calls with, you know, how much this stuff cost and how could we, you know, integrate it. And so, but it was, it was really quite good. That one was, was probably a lot of people besides the, the integrated deterrence panel where you sort of had Bob and Justin sort of going back and forth. That other panel was also a favorite because uh, it was one of those that you, you don't get as much. And you had, you know, you had a psychologist from Oregon who, you know, talked about some of these sort of critical elements. Um, and it was it was just a good one that was provocative. And Paul Slovic, he's the professor of psychology from Oregon. And that was pretty good. Um, yeah, I think those were that was. Yeah, I think, you know, the 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 effort to, to influence um, others and shape behavior is such a challenge and is so open to uh, so many variables and interpretations and these sorts of things. Um, but this, this thing you were talking about with the ability to sort of analyze the speeches 
and getting into that. This we this is interesting stuff. We we looked at some of this a few years ago um, in one of my previous um, areas that I was working in, and and I think it is so important to have someone who is fluent in say the Russian language and to read um, a, a Putin speech and to watch a Putin speech in the language without translation or interpretation. Uh, they'll get a different meaning out of that and they'll identify um, the points of emphasis that can get lost in just a mere translation. And, and those are clues. <clears throat> some of them are subtle, some of them are not. That can really key us into what's got the adversary going? What's their, where is their value in something? What are they interested in? What is it that we are doing uh, that is frustrating them or vice versa? that deterrence thinkers can look at and begin to dissect and figure out, is there a course correction one way or the other in those sorts of things? Jim, what do you think? That's a very STEMI kind of thought here. What do you got to add? Yeah. So interestingly, a couple of shows ago, I spoke of talking about the the trolley problem where you get into the psychology of, of decisions about, about death and, and, and um, it's rather interesting when you start looking at the psychology and the philosophy of death. And the reason I started reading that book was less about the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I believe that's a show that we did, but it was just relevant at the time. But the reason I started reading that is because if you read in some of the texts about the recent emergence of artificial intelligence, they're using psychological concepts to help make decisions based upon understanding the psychology of the adversary or the or the people that are interacting i'm curious if that came up because to me that is a study that is really important because it can lead you one it can lead to good things or it can lead to bad things and both are important for us as we look at our deterrence our deterrence and a future of modern warfare anything come up on that adam yeah i mean sort of to go back to the discussion of you know, this software that the, this lab has developed, it, the, the challenge for them, a lot of it was sort of like what you were talking about, Curtis, in terms of like the language. So they're, you know, they're trying to develop the capability to do this for Russian or for, and to really the nuanced elements of Russian and Chinese and to get the, you know, the AI to be able to recognize for you know a russian or chinese speaker or what you know what words what you know and then you know it's facial expression it's all sorts of stuff what does that mm -hmm. mean because yeah. like we have text analysis we have uh software that does text analysis and looks for words and and you know but but they always you know as i've talked to people who've developed these programs as they get into Russian and Chinese where you have, you're, you're not using a standard Roman alphabet, you know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's a different language with different meaning. That's where it tends to get harder. Oh, definitely. And yeah. That, that, that's a, a big challenge that they're trying to work on and, and Chinese in particular because of the nature of the language. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I came across this, I, I recently uh, got the uh, book, the final fight for freedom by uh, Congressman Chris Stewart. And he covers a bit of that information in there about how that's connected. That sort of made me start thinking that way. And uh, so I'm just finishing that book. 
Uh, and then, and, and so I would, you know, advise our, our listeners to take, take a listen as well as the, the a new book. I haven't read it yet. I just read the front cover, but I believe, um, uh, Edward Hoglan, um, wrote this, uh, the cognitive war that sort of covers this as well. And I think, I think that's, that's the value of, of these books. And I just want to say being the president of NIDS a year ago, the books I was reading, such as electromagnetics with applications and microelectronic circuit design and you know uh, nuclear weapon physics i've changed my tune a little bit guys you're really changing me i just wanted to mention that i was just thinking about that as you were talking cuz i'm starting to make these connections adam so i will challenge curtis and adam uh, I still have electromagnetics with applications. You're welcome to read it and, uh, and sort of share in, in this. So I will, we'll, we'll have these conversations later yeah. on as well, but I'm seriously, not changing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously uh, for our, for our audience, the, the connection of that, especially if you are a technical person and you're reading about how this affects the human side of this, because in, in the end, the technology, at least for now is not, is not causing and or fighting the wars. It's humans making decisions that are fighting the wars and the psychology of them. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and, and it's really important to see that piece. So I'm really glad you guys covered that. Cause I think it's, it's an important aspect of deterrence. Yeah. It's so hard to really understand the adversary and we don't do a very good job of it. I think history has shown that and trying to understand what motivates what, you know, how adversaries calculate, um, and rationalize these different things. We're running out of time here. Uh, I want to wrap up on the last one, Adam, with you. The last panel uh, of the symposium was a deterrence education, a call to service panel. Um, we here at NIDS do a lot of deterrence education. It's one of our uh, three tenants uh, and our pillars here in what we do. Uh, I was curious what you, uh, what you took away from on this uh, particular panel. Um, well, I would say that, you know, in terms of what sort of what we think of as deterrence education, Shane Smith, who took over for uh, Jim Smith, who was longtime uh, director of the INSS, the Institute for National Security Studies at the Air Force Academy, he talked a lot about, you know, what he specifically does. And Donna Wilt, who's at at um, she's at USANCA and then Ted Carter, who's the president of the university of Nebraska, you know, they sort of spoke in larger terms about contributions to deterrence and to the nuclear community. Shane sort of spoke, I think what, what I would have recognized for me as a long-term PME professor who's familiar with who does what and where and what gets covered his, you know, his talk sort of spoke more closely to, you know, to my experience. And, you know, it's, I think there's a lot of opportunity, you know, cause I, you know, did a, some preparation uh, for that panel and then doing preparation and looking at who's teaching what, where, there's there's a lot of opportunity because you know Missouri State for example is really the only school that offers sort of I don't want to say pro nuke but I want to say you know 
an education that is here's what they are, here's how they're used, you know, that that doesn't take a very specific arms control and disarmament, non-proliferation. So most of the programs that are sort of nuclear in focus, they already have the outcome is determined, disarmament. Right. How do we get right. to disarmament? So that's what dominates like civilian education. How do we get to disarmament right now or in the right. near future? But we don't really have a lot of education that says, okay, how do we use weapons to ensure deterrence? How do we maintain it? How do we, that are sort of more operational in focus? And then within the PME system, you know, the war colleges, the command and staff colleges, you you have some, but you don't have a lot. And so there's lots of room for growth there. And there's there's definitely room for growth within the civilian academia to build, you know, programs that are offer a more sort of what I would call useful education to help people who would go in to the profession and be able to offer good strategy, good operational uh, thoughts to help ensure the stability and the continued success of deterrence. And that's really where there was a very clear gaping hole. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, the, the ability to, to educate practitioners rather than uh, creating advocates uh, with regard to, uh, you know, a disarmament purpose, uh, these sorts of things is, is, um, you know, are really kind of two different methodologies. I think uh, um, as we look at, if you will, deterrence education for lack of better description. Uh, but, but as we can see, when we look through this, these, all these panels, you know, the psychology, uh, the threat-based issues, the war gaming issues, the, the analysis of, um, of, of um, geography and adversaries and economies and deterrence is a really big subject. And it really begs this kind of holistic academic uh, experience, uh, in order to create those kinds of thinkers. And, um, uh, you know, and then I think when you solve some of these really, really big problems that create conflict, you kind of solve the nuclear question, uh, along with it, because it's really a question about war and potential war. And, um, uh, rather than, you know, one specific weapon, uh, you know, we kind of thought we solved the, the chem bio problem <clears throat> yet, we still do a lot of chem bio around here, yeah. uh, but you know, everybody's on these treaties, but we seem to think that we've got to be prepared for that anyway. Uh, so, um, you know, and I always like to remind the audience, you know, if, if the world is enlightened enough to eliminate nuclear weapons, why is it not enlightened enough, you know, to sort of live with them? Uh, and so, these are the kinds of, uh, I don't know, ways that I wrestle with. Well, it's that time. Uh, and so we're going to wrap things up. Let me jump over. Adam, I'm going to give you the last word, but let me go to Jim first. Uh, and uh, what are your uh, parting thoughts here? Well, um, yeah, so we're no longer we're no longer the single superpower. We've got pure adversaries. And so I'm reminded of a, a TV show called The Star Trek Next Generation, and there was a character called Q who was omnipotent, but he was being punished one time and he was taken out of his omnipotence and was actually able to be injured and possibly die. And his answer uh, to somebody at one point was, 
it's so hard no longer being omnipotent. And, you know, it is harder to, to look at a world with multiple adversaries instead of being the single, uh, you know, single superpower. And so it is harder and we have to think harder. And I think part of the NIDS requirement and part of what we're seeing at Stratcom with the symposium, why I was glad that we had so many people there is that we have to think a lot more about how we message, how we react and how we respond. And so this is a, this is important for people to understand that we're changing things in order to react and to control the environment. So we remain at peace. Well said, well said, Jim, Adam. So that's, is it, uh, really appreciate you being on assignment, uh, in Omaha and, uh, and getting to go to, uh, to the deterrent symposium. Um, so if you will just give us your parting thoughts here. Well, I just uh, appreciated the opportunity uh, to have a couple. I think I had steak four times while I was in Omaha. So I uh, appreciate it's always that. about food. <laughs> I appreciated that opportunity. And, you know, it's just it's a it's a good chance to really for, for young people who might want to become deterrence practitioners that's a great conference to, to, you know, they have panel presentations where you can do, or not panels, but um, poster board presentations. So you can, if you're a young person who might listen to the show and you, you've got some research and you want to present it, be, you know, I, submit your poster when the call comes out next year. So watch that from Stratcom. And then I can tell you for a fact that, you know, one of the poster presentations last year, one of our guys, Dylan Land, who was there, he now works at Stratcom. And, you know, I've, I had some, some interns over the summer and they were on posters and they very well may wind up working at Stratcom as well. So it's a great place. The Stratcom Symposium is a great place for, for young folks to meet and start building a network of people who can help you move into this profession if that's what you're looking for. Well, very good. Well, thank you very much for that. We're looking forward to seeing everybody next year at the at the Deterrent Symposium, and, and which I'm sure will be in Omaha again. And um, and for our our our, uh, our vegetarian and vegan listeners, who, you know, we'll find some really good places to eat as well. They don't have to always be steak places. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At, until next week. Thank you very much. And uh, we want to always remind you to thank Deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength, and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please lend your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, 
our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.